Welcome to Canada's podcast, the number one podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Canada's podcast, Canada's number one podcast for entrepreneurs across Canada. I'm Phil Bliss, coming to you from Toronto, and today we're going to meet Andrew Kugel, who's co-founder and chief executive of Tokens.com, which, as you can imagine, is in the cryptocurrency business, and Andrew has a pretty impressive record in that business and in investment. So, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so probably a weird start, but my story starts in Santiago, Chile, where I was born uh, about 50 years ago. And, you know, if I was to, you know, when I describe my first 10 years to my children who were seven and eight, I say, you know, by the time I was your age, I had gone through two major earthquakes, a military coup and relocated to, to Canada. And so I think that's kind of something that ends up forming a little bit about what you're about and, and you know, coming to Canada with nothing as an immigrant with, you know, immigrant parents as a child, right, really forms a lot of your character and, and what you know, the kind of things that interest you as you get older. Yeah, that, that really is being, being an immigrant that came in, in in sort of not not the best circumstances, but but a change a change of direction. I kind of get that. Um, people don't look at a, a whitehead gray guy as an immigrant, but we all have to start. Sure. You know, that. we all that's right. And and you know, I, I think it's actually you know, Philip, it's those failures, and, and you read about this all the time, but it's it's really true. It is is those failures and those struggles that really. You know, the way you react to those things and your attitude is what shapes who you become. And even as an adult now, I mean, these are things that never stop. I can, I can look and see the challenges I've had over the last month, you know, and those are still things that you were reacting to and figure out how they're going to shape your future. So, you know, we, we just, just a brief chat we had at the beginning, you know, you, you say you've been out as an entrepreneur for about three years. And I'm always interested in, in that, you know, you, you were in investment banking, you, you know, um, with some pretty solid, you know, I would say institutional style companies. Um, what made you step out and, and step out in, into into crypto, basically? What made you do that? Yeah, so I started looking at crypto back in in, in, in Bitcoin back in 2016. Okay. And I was pretty skeptical. I thought it was like, this is a Ponzi scheme. This is, you know, there's something here not to be trusted. But it was one of those things that the more I studied, the more I became fascinated with it. In the same way today that you're seeing people like Elon Musk and Ray Dalio who are starting to talk about Bitcoin. And this was sort of the critical thinking that was going on in my mind you know, four or five years ago. We started raising money for a company and it was me with some clients and coworkers, a coworker and two clients. And we said, you know, this would be a great idea if we created a company that was a, a Bitcoin mining company and gave investors a chance to, to get exposure to this area. So we all put in a little bit of money and said, well, let's give it a shot. And, and I think at the time I sort of said, well, I'll just go along with the group here. It wasn't my idea, to be very honest. Um, a month later, we had a billion dollars of demand for this idea from investors all over the world. Wow. And we were off to the races, but we didn't have any leadership. Mm -hmm. 
At that point, I had been in banking about 20 years as an investment banker. Uh, we had re- recruited some of the you know, top-notch board members, some, some real you know, superstars in the crypto world to, to, to be part of the company. Right. And they came to me and said, you know what, Andrew, like, you've guided us through this. You've done the financial engineering. You've helped put the business plan together. Why don't you come and be the CEO? And, and that was really, you know, I sort of thought to myself, do I want to retire as an investment banker where you were constantly uh, working for other people? Or I can move into this company and really shape and build something and, and grow my skill set uh, at this point in my life. Okay, that's interesting. Um, you know, but that, that's still, you, you make it look kind of fairly seamless in the sense from, from one side to another. But, you know, what made you give up? I mean, whatever you were doing, you were stepping into something that was insecure to a degree compared to the last 20 years. Then you've got a family and kids and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, well, what? I, yeah, so I think that there's probably a couple of parts to this story. So number one, you have to go back, and this goes back to, to, to when you're younger and when I was a child, I was fascinated with running a business. Um, I think some people might say I'm a little bit of a control freak. And so I like talking, you know, when, when I was a kid, I liked playing Dungeons and Dragons and being the, the, dun- the, the, the dungeon master, the guy who designs this stuff. I didn't want to be a player. I wanted to be the, the coach, the guy who was in control and designing things. And when I was in, in university, I started a used jeans clothing company. These are not things you'll ever find on a resume. Mm-hmm. And then I spent, you know, the last 18 years of my banking career were at GMP Securities, where yes, I was a banker, but if anything ever needed to be done, I was always the first guy to put up my hand and say, let me build that. Let me create that. And even in my most successful uh, part of my career at GMP was real estate. But what again doesn't come through on the resume was I originally thought about creating a real estate group at that firm, what would have been 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the senior partners at the time said, why do you want to do that? You're going to fail. Um, that's not going to work. Now, I, I had a strong conviction that it wouldn't work. I had my, my viewpoints and everything around that, and I got them to support me on it. And then, you know, two years later, I was you know one of the largest revenue generators at the firm through this real estate practice that I built. Mm-hmm. But that sense of, uh, I would say, wanting to control things and build things and be uh, accountable for what I'm doing has always been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so taking that leap to being a CEO, yeah, it, that was big. And at the time, I was actually going through a divorce. And I had just written, you know, a bit personal, I had just written a very large check to my ex-wife and, and considered myself to be, um, you know, a lot of many years of hard work that had been transferred over. And what I sort of thought about it was from one day to the next, from, from having, you know, writing that check, I thought I was going to be devastated. Until the next day, I realized, hmm, it didn't make a difference. I, I had lost sort of what I thought was sort of years of, of work uh, expressed as a dollar symbol. And I said, you know, this is the time for me to make a change because it, it didn't hurt as much as I thought it would. It, that physicality of, of money didn't mean as much to me as the uh, gratitude and the fulfillment I got in earning it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense to me. You know, going back to your business, I mean, I think a lot of people 
But I mean, you know, obviously Bitcoin's getting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, what do you see? You know, you're in it up to your armpits kind of thing. What do you see as the future of, uh, uh, of, of, the, of the industry, you know, say in the next five years? So I think it's going to be huge. And, and I think the, you know, it, it is big right now. People are talking about it. I don't quite think people understand it. And I think to understand Bitcoin, you have to understand the failures of the current fiat system. And, you know, I, I ask this question sometimes. I say, you know, a Wayne Gretzky rookie card is worth a million dollars and a uh, Michael Jordan rookie card is worth about $100,000. Mm -hmm. Take a guess as to the reason why. Well, apart from, apart from it being Gretzky. Well, uh, there's a lot more Michael Jordan cards. Volume is, is the key thing, yeah. Well, scarcity. There's a lot of Michael yeah, Jordan rookie cards around. Too much of one, too few of the other. That's right. And, and the reason, you know, today that gold is gold, and gold has been used as a form of currency or value for, you know, centuries, as opposed to seashells or, or rocks, is because there's a scarcity factor and it costs money to, to mine it and, and get it in that form. Fiat currency, and what you're seeing all around the world is a response to COVID. Like It's not a coincidence that the rise of Bitcoin here coincides with COVID. Now, it might seem like a bit of a stretch, but as governments continue to print money, what they're really doing with the same concept is the more money that's printed, the less valuable it becomes. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I, I think the word is, you know, they're devaluing the currency through these stimulus packages. And I think Joe Biden is, is trying to get a $1.9 trillion uh, package through. And another interesting fact, you know, 30% of all U.S. dollars in circulation, 30% of all U.S. dollars in circulation were printed in 2020. So I go back to this principle of, what makes things valuable or not valuable? And it, to me, it is scarcity plus what somebody is willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And if you look at current, you know, you look at what's happened in Venezuela and other countries, the more you print of a currency, you eventually are going to create inflation. The thing about Bitcoin that I think is interesting, and I, and I don't want to make this whole thing about Bitcoin, but what I think is interesting about Bitcoin is that the, the concept of what is sound money, or what I would say a, a almost a computerized rate of inflation that keeps Bitcoin scarce is, is embedded in code. It's a digital representation of sound money. And so as the demand increases, because people say, I don't want to keep my money in US dollars or Canadian dollars because they keep deflating as inflation goes up. I want to put this in something that has some scarcity value. And, and I think that's going to attract people to things like gold, silver, and Bitcoin. Uh, and Bitcoin is really just a digital representation of sound money. Um, that's only going to be exacerbated in the next few years as the impact of all this COVID stimulus works its way through the economic system. What do you see as the biggest challenge in your particular future as an entrepreneur? My biggest, I mean, look, as I described to somebody the other day, being an entrepreneur is, you know, it's some days of jubilation and, and euphoria followed by several days of heart, heartbreak. Mm -hmm. um, when I look at the challenges, a, you know, being an entrepreneur requires a lot of emotional thick skin. Uh, there are some good days. There's a lot of bad days. And 
some of that, you know, just relates to how you, how you react to that and, and having that work ethic to keep going. I think the ability to, to raise capital and access capital uh, and in my specific field, I think just the, while I, I have a very, the, the prognosis I have for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency over the next five to 10 years is very high. However, the pathway to getting there is volatile. And so it is about the, you know, the volatility. And my last company, HUD8, which is now a, you know, a $600 million public company. Mm -hmm. uh, while I was running it, it was at a time when Bitcoin dropped by 90%. Now, at the time, everybody declared Bitcoin debt because it went from you know, 18, 19,000 down to 3,000. Today, it's sitting at 35,000 and everyone's forgotten about that. But you know, many companies during my tenure uh, of running HUD 8 didn't make it. And so you're always trying to design a company that is able to be leveraged for the upside, but can withstand, you know, the, the punches when things are not great. I mean, that, that sort of comes on to a question I like to ask everybody is, you know, and, and I think the business that you've grown up in, you hit challenges on a regular basis, basically. They hit you, actually. But well, yes. they, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a better way to explain you know, have you kind of evolved a process of handling that? How do, how do you manage that that those, those kind of slaps, if you like? Yeah, so you learn different modes of, of reacting uh, along the way. I used to be a very emotional guy. I've learned to, at least when it comes to work, to sort of park that away. And I do that through several methods. Um, you know, I meditate. I try to, you know, spend, I have a, you know, young kids. I try and make sure I spend time with them away from my phone or a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, I try and read. Uh, I try and, you know, a new thing that I've, that I've picked up is taking ice baths. Uh, mm -hmm. As crazy as that, as that sounds, why it is a highly uh, traumatic thing to do to your body and really focuses you where like when you're in an ice bath, you're not thinking about, you know, whatever it is that's going on at work. And so I think it's a function of trying to put things into perspective. And I think really that comes with, with, with experience and, and you get better at it. Like I said, there's some days that are still heartbreaking and, and you know, you go to your room and, and curl up and cry. Uh, but those moments of euphoria are, 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 are great. And that sense of accomplishment is really the things that keep, keep me motivated. And, you know, we've all sort of, experience mentors going along um what's what's the best piece of advice that you've received that you just keep on going back to and using you know time and time again yeah so a few sort of lessons that i've learned this is a great quote from from one of my mentors um you know the the enemy of the great plan is the search for the perfect plan and what that is, is that there's a lot of, I think, entrepreneurs and, and, and business people who suffer paralysis because they have this vision of needing something to be perfect. And um, that delay can, can cost uh, a lot of issues. You know, the enemy of the great plan is a search for the perfect plan. It's, it's about really sometimes you have to get out there and do things, even though you're not quite ready. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, for me, having a lot of critical thinking so you, you can get back a lot of things as, you, as, as I've sort of matured as, a, as an entrepreneur, I've become a lot more 
comfortable questioning people and things, uh, you know, different figures of might be authority or regulation to say, why is that? Why, how did you come to those conclusions? Um, so I think some of that is, is helpful as well. I, those are the three lessons I teach my kids. I say, if you guys can learn this stuff now, they're pretty young, they're seven and eight. I might be pushing them too early, but I say, you know, critical thinking, delayed gratification and work ethic. I think those are three things that if you can package those things up and somehow in, in your ability to, to tackle or approach anything, uh, generally can lead to a, a good outcome. This is an interesting one. So if you weren't doing what you're doing now, still you know working in the financial side of, of, of the world, what would you be doing instead? You know, as a child, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, that, you know, I used to, I love biographies on writers. You know, I was a guy that, you know, we're studying finance, but I would go home and I was, you know, read, you know, the classic stuff, which, you know, the critical readers might find it not that interesting. But, you know, I loved Hemingway and, um, you know, Henry Miller, Jack Kerouac, you know, those were things that I liked reading. And it was a little bit of that escape and to sort of see some of these exciting things, especially from that era, mm -hmm. uh, the time call it, you know, depending on which writer, you know, 1940s to 1960s. You know, what, what, what book are you reading just now? Right now I'm reading Ray Dalio's Principles, but I wouldn't, you know, that's not a book I would say that, you know, I think there's some good lessons in there, but that's not a book that in, in two years I will remember and, and is having moved me. You know, one book I always... What would point, you recommend? I mean, well, so someone, as, as someone who's an entrepreneur, you know, I, I like I like Marcus Aurelius meditations. That's one that I keep in my side drawer. And I, I always, you know, that's a book I can pick up and just open up to any page. And there is, you know, a great life lesson in there. And you asked before about being an entrepreneur. Well, stoicism, which comes from, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, which is really, it's his personal notes. He never intended that to be published. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in reading that, it's a lot of things about, you know, if you can't control something, don't let it bother you. If you can control it, then control it. But it's all about sort of keeping control of your emotions and, and you know, lessons in life. I would say that book to me is a lot more valuable. I, you know, I listen to sometimes these, these podcasts and some of the books recommended, and they're all sort of these very straightforward, like life lessons books, like, you know, The, the Art of War or 50 yeah. Power. I didn't, I read those books. I didn't find them that helpful and sometimes a little bit aggressive in, in sort of having a, an adversarial view. I really like the Marcus Aurelius stuff because it's, it's about not just business lessons, but I think life lessons and being a good person. So if you had to pick one word to describe who you are, what would it be? Uh, I'd say father. A father? Yeah, I think that's the thing I'm proudest of. Okay, that's good. That's a good. That, that, that might be the first time that someone's actually said that. Uh, that I can, oh. That's great. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my most important job. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. You know, you know, in terms of, you know, are you, are you a morning or a night person? These are silly ones, but it, it's funny. I, I just like these ones because you get, you get a perspective. Yeah, um, I think that varies from time to time. Uh, what I am finding lately, well, look, I, 
nobody, I don't love working with, like I wake up early in the morning. I'm usually up by 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also frequently up at 4 a.m. And what happens is I will have some thing at four o'clock in the morning that I think is brilliant. I'll, I'll run downstairs into the office here and start typing away for an hour. Then I revisit it back when I wake up and I'm like, I didn't need to come down and write that down. That wasn't so good. <laughs> you know? But at the time, it felt quite urgent. So I, 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 I'll run downstairs and do that. But, um, you know, right now, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this before, as an entrepreneur, I, I don't feel like I, there's a time clock. Like I'll be in the middle of dinner and I'll think of something. I try, you know, I always carry on like a little pad with me that, I, that I, I'm always writing notes. Uh, what I need to do, reminders, and it's things come to you at any point of the day or night. And I, I keep these notes. And when I wake up in the morning, I have my list ready to go for the day. First, first thing I do before I go to bed is I check my schedule for the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm also a bit of a news hound. You know, I will check, you know, the Globe and Mail, the, you know, the, the, the Wall Street Journal. I want to know what's going on before I start my day. And then I tackle my list. Once the list is tackled, I will sort of then start going through emails and responding to people, you know, and then, you know, all of a sudden it's 11 o'clock at night. Uh, This is, this is a silly one. I mean, but how do you disconnect? It's almost impossible. Maybe we just talk about a bit bit of a better one. With the last year that we've all experienced through this pandemic, what's your perspective on, you know, what will stay and what will, you know, in terms of the way we're working now, what remains, what will sort of everyone go back? Yeah, um, I think this is going to have profound impact in how people work. I know a lot of people that have relocated. And, and the reason is, is if I can work remotely, I don't want to work remotely from Canada. I'll go do it from somewhere in the Caribbean or or somewhere that's warmer or has a a better tax regime. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this idea that you can do your job from anywhere is going to stick. So that's going to have a lot of implications to like downtown office space. Does it, does it matter anymore to live in a city like Toronto and be close to Bay street or New York? I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the last few weeks that have left New York. Yeah. A friend of mine says, you know, Prime office space downtown Toronto is now down to 30 bucks a square foot. You know? Yeah. It's like, I, I was talking to a guy from New York this morning and he left and they said, well, why'd you leave? He said, well, I live in a 300 square foot place in New York. Nothing's open and it's cold. Um, if I can go and get a better tax rate in, in you know, Miami or, or somewhere in Texas or Puerto Rico, be in the sun. Why wouldn't I do that? Wow, like I think the mental health aspect of people being crammed in these little spaces yeah. and these government restrictions, I think people are people are moving to places that have tax advantage. Everyone's real scared about taxes because all of this COVID stimulus, you know, Canada, and I don't want to get too controversial, but when I look at the response from the federal government, and I'm not going to opine on right or wrong, but I'd say if you look at the numbers, there's been about a trillion dollars spent in Canada. And let's compare that to tax collection. So tax collection, which is not all the government revenue, but you know, income tax collection is about 150 billion a year. So 
we have just spent several years of tax collection money in the last 10 months to battle COVID. And most of that, a lot of that has been paying people to stay home. Now, what could we have done with that money? We could have built hospitals. We could have built infrastructure. We could have built new long-term healthcare facilities with better you know, air filtration and all those things, new roads, new schools, new hospitals. And by the end of that, we would have been employing people and had one of the most progressive modern you know, infrastructures in the world. And instead, through all of this, we are short vaccinations. We're failing poorly at getting people vaccinated. People have been paid to stay home and there's been nothing tangible built. And, and that to me is disappointing. And I wonder how we're going to pay for it. Does this mean we're going to see increased taxes? I've always been a believer that, you know, if taxes were cut, people might go out and spend and let the market dictate where the money should flow. So if people felt like they had more money, they'll decide which industries will survive because they'll be spending their money in those areas as opposed to the government saying, we're going to subsidize everything and tell people how to live, how to travel, where to visit, you know, places like Quebec where you have a curfew. That, that to me is, it's quite draconian. Like, can you imagine? I mean, you're in Hamilton. I mean, the thought of having a curfew, and this is not a wartime or terrorist type situation, but the government trying to control this, I understand. But why are we not having referendums on this to see what people want? Why is money not being invested into long-term healthcare facilities to, to fix and tackling that problem instead of taking away people's civil liberties? It's a tough one. I think it's a very it's completely. And and I and I yeah. I, I realize my opinion is not shared by everyone. No, no, I said that's okay. Um, you're in Toronto. Yep. You're you're still an immigrant. You came from Chile. You know, you know. Why Toronto? Why are you why are you still there? So um that's a great question. So as I told you before, I, I'm divorced and remarried. Yeah. Um I have two children, seven and eight. And in order for me to relocate, um, I would have to either convince my uh ex-wife and her partner to relocate with me uh, so I can keep seeing my children. I see my children five days a week mm -hmm. and, uh, or I'd have to make the choice to not see them. And so the, the lesser of all evils is to remain in Toronto, which is still a great city. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's just, the, you know, the cold with the lockdown right now, uh, because I, cause I, I need to see my children. That's, uh, that's my most important role. If my children lived with me full time, I would probably have relocated to something, you know, somewhere else for, for 12 months just to have that life experience. Uh, you know, Toronto for me, I, I came to Canada when I was seven years old. Um, so I was quite young. So my, my parents are, are still here. They're both alive. And this feels a lot like home to me, even though, you know, technically, you know, like you, I don't look like I'm an, an immigrant, but, I'm, you know, I'm Hispanic. Um, and so. This feels very home-like to me, but if, I, if it wasn't for my children keeping me grounded here, I, I would have relocated for, for 12 months. Andrew, that's, it's been really interesting. You know, how, I always ask this, you know, how can people get a hold of you online? Um, you know, what's the best route to do that? Because people listen and I know they get a hold of, of, of people to ask them some questions. 
Yeah. So maybe the best way is a, a new venture that I started and I'm launching my, my fundraise today, uh, but it's called tokens.com. And you can go right to the URL, uh, T-O-K-E-N-S.com. And there's a contact section there and people can certainly, I think it's uh, contact at tokens.com and they can certainly send stuff that I'll, I'll take a look at. I don't want to necessarily give up my, my, my personal oh, email. That, that understood. Yeah. I'm also on LinkedIn uh, and, and yeah. Twitter. So yeah. I, mean, I find LinkedIn is the best way for people to go. Yeah. Although, do you get served a lot? Of, I get served a lot of uh, you know inbound messages every day of uh, it's got, it's got, it's got, your website redone. Do you have web design needs? Yeah, yeah. I, I I know exactly what you're saying. But thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been fun, and uh, you know, I uh, uh, thanks for taking the time. No, with pleasure. And uh, you know, thank you very much. I certainly, uh, you know, have enjoyed our chat.